Good morning. Take your Bible this morning and turn to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. And we're going to continue our study in James this morning. Probably the biggest takeaway, if you've been with us in the series, uh, you picked this up probably. Uh, but probably the biggest takeaway uh, in James is that if the gospel is truly, like, authentically taken root in your life, it's going to produce evident fruit. If the gospel is taken root in your life, it's going to produce noticeable fruit. Not imperfection, but in progression, right? And so uh, a, a way we could think about that as we've walked through these different topics in James is he's making the point that when you become an authentic follower of Jesus Christ, it's going to noticeably change, as we looked in, verse, in a chapter 1 of the first week of this study, it's going to noticeably change the way you walk through a trial. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, if you possess authentic faith, it's going to noticeably change the way that you deal with temptation to sin. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you possess authentic faith, it's going to change the way that you, you love people and see people and treat people, uh, especially in your, in your church. Uh, and then this week, uh, what we see is uh, that the fruits of the Spirit and someone who possesses authentic faith will continue to define your life specifically in the area of how we speak, how we talk. James is going to show us in uh, what is probably the most thorough uh, passage in all the New Testament on this subject, what it looks like to speak in a way that honors God. He's going to show us that our words matter. He's going to show us that our words are a significant part of our life. And we already know that, right? Words are a significant part of our existence. So we listen to songs with words in them. Uh, we read books with words in them. Uh, many of you will tune into a game tonight to watch a football game that would be uh, probably way more boring and feeling complete if it weren't for a couple people who will be commentating it and saying words to help uh, some of you who may get confused understand what's going on and just for the rest of us to move uh, the game along and to just help make it more entertaining, right? We play games that involve words, right? So words with friends is one of those games, right? A new one, I think it's not new, but it's popular right now, is Wordle, all right? Some of you play Wordle, uh, which if you play it like I did this past week just because I was interested, it's basically like a hangman without the man hanging, off the stick figure hanging. You know, it's basically a hangman without a hangman. It's like the politically correct version of hangman, all right? <laughs> hangman got canceled. <clears throat> we use words to... Uh, we use words to express our minds and our, our, our thoughts on social media, right? Words will be written in Valentine's Day cards that you may receive tomorrow that will express someone's love for you. All right, we're talking people. We speak. We talk. We use words. We communicate. And we are that way because God made us that way because he's a communicating God. He's a talking God and we're image bearers of God. Therefore, that's why we communicate. He made us that way. It's a good thing. We're talking people. It's a gift that's unique in all of creation to human beings, right? You can find some other parts of creation that can kind of uh, copy what you're saying, but no other part of creation converses and talks and dialogues and shares their thoughts through the gift of language like we do, all right? It's a gift that we enjoy, right? From an early age, we see our kids uh, grab onto it and discover words, uh, begin to enjoy those, and they never stop, Right? They, that thing gets cranked up and it doesn't stop. They learn uh, a few words and it's off to the races, right? So uh, for parents, it's an amazing thing to watch for a little while, right? Uh, at first, the, the high, it's a highlight of your day, right? As a parent, when you, uh, that little baby is beginning to uh, 
maybe two, one or two years old, begins to craft words with their tongue and the, and the noises coming up out of their throat and, they, and, you're, and you're telling them words and all of a sudden they say something that sounds like a word and you take a video of that, you send it to 15 different people, you send it to your husband at work and you send it to your, to your mom maybe and say, I think, I, think she said, I think she said mama, right? And you're excited and then you get text back. I think she said dada. I think she said, I think she said Grammy or Mimi or whatever grandma's called. Right? It's been, that's exciting, right? So it's, but it's been said that <clears throat> we spend the first two years teaching our kids how to talk in the next 16, trying to get them to be quiet. And you say, well, why is that? What, you say, well, why is that? What changed? Well, what you're experiencing firsthand with your kids is that as an incredible of a gift as words are, as incredible as that tool is, we see in their lives firsthand that we're terrible managers of that gift. And that's not just with our kids. That's with all of us. We greatly struggle in this area. And yet God says this is a really important part of your life as a disciple. So we need James's help. We need the Holy Spirit's help through the book of James. So stand with your Bibles open. I'll begin to read in verse 1 on a section called Taming the Tongue. It says in verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the hor- in the mouths of horses uh, so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Uh, though they are so large and are driven by the strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great is a forest or how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of righteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed, and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison, while it will bless our Lord and Father, and with it, let me reread that verse. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. And that's all he writes. So he gives us a lot of things to think about. So have a seat as I pray. Father, there's nothing more good, there's nothing more delightful to the soul of a new creation than your living, active word. And so, Lord, we pray that your word would teach us today. Lord, help us to remember as we walk through a passage that is extremely convicting, as so much of James is, that you cut us with your word to heal us, cut us to help us. We remember you use your word like a surgeon's knife. Not to cut to hurt, but to heal and to help. And so, Lord, I pray that we would lay ourselves on the table with humility, with teachability, that we'd humble ourselves before your word, and that we'd be changed because of it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, notice James begins his, this passage on how to use words in verse 1 in a, in a strange way, or at least it sounds strange at first, because it almost sounds like he's discouraging people from becoming preachers or Bible teachers. Not many of you should become teachers, but 
the point that he's making is pretty simple. He's making the point that to teach God's word, and this is a word for anyone who opens God's word. It doesn't matter if you're the mom at home opening the kids' Bible, teaching your kids truths from God's word. Uh, Sunday school teachers, those who teach in our kids' ministry area here, those who teach Bible study groups to those who stand up and preach. Uh, his point is this. Those who teach God's word need to remember and recognize always the very weighty matter that it is to teach God's word. It's a responsibility that should not be taken lightly, right? It's a, it's a responsibility. It's an accountability uh, that we should uh, understand the weight of. It, it involves a commitment to study. It involves a commitment to make sure we're mining out of the text what is there. It's a commitment to make sure what we're mining out and what we're serving up, we're actually feasting on ourselves. We don't ever want to become Bible teachers that are really good at serving up meals that we don't eat ourselves, as I heard a pastor recently say. So we have, it's a commitment level because we understand the accountability of it. Because we understand that we are speaking words as a teacher that are giving us an opportunity to, to literally help people walk in the ways of God. To walk in the ways of the Lord, which is a wonderful thing. But we also understand how serious this is because if we're not careful, we also know that our words have the power to make people greatly stumble. And on the last day, God's word shows us that teachers of his word will be judged with greater strictness. Right? So every Sunday morning when I stand in the place I'm standing right now, it doesn't escape me that according to God's word, that all sermons and all Bible lessons are going to be reviewable one day in heaven. I heard somebody say, if you end up in heaven and, uh, and you see two lines and you're standing in a line with a bunch of preachers and Bible teachers, get in the other line. All right? Because that's a joke, but it's a, a good point that person was making there. As Bible teachers, how we use our words matter. But then James moves quickly to not just focusing on Bible teachers, to broadening the scope of his focus on everybody. Right? So for everybody who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ, how you use your words matter. In verse 2 he says, uh, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's per a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. That's a difficult verse to understand. It's spent a lot of time uh, you know, sitting in that verse this week. And, and sometimes it's important to know this as you become a student of God's word, that in order sometimes to understand what something is meaning, the meaning of something is to eliminate what it cannot be saying. So we use scripture to interpret scripture. Uh, God's word is not just holy, it's harmonious. It agrees with each other on every page and every chapter and every book. And so what he cannot be saying is that there's a chance for us to become perfect, all right? That is antithetical to the gospel and what God's word teaches us uh, about salvation and sanctification and glorification. Uh, but we, what we understand is we dig into the meaning of the word perfect there. It's the same word that James uses over in chapter 1, verse 4 for perfect. And it's a word that means to mature, to grow to make spiritual progress in your discipleship. And the point that I think James is making in verse 2 is really the main uh, point in the whole text right here. And it's this, that a mark of an authentic, maturing disciple who possesses authentic faith is a controlled tongue. In other words, the paraphrase of what I believe James is saying in verse 2 is, hey, he's saying, hey, we all sin. He says it there. We all stumble, we're, but we're all seeking to grow. We're all seeking to grow into the perfect, progressively into the perfect likeness of Jesus Christ. But someone who is maturing, a clear indicator of that in somebody's life is that when they have a tight rein on their words, 
They have a tight rein on their tongue, not just biting your tongue, but when the words of your, of coming out of your mouth in your everyday life, especially around people who are closest to you, the words that flow begin to become more caring than they are critical, progressively become more grace filled than they are grumbling, progressively become more helpful than they are hurtful. And when that's the case, it's an indicator of a heightened spiritual maturity really throughout all areas of your discipleship. I believe that's what James is saying in verse 2. In other words, our words are a little window into your life, a little window into your inner man, into your heart. That's the big point James will make in this text. James is very concerned with how we use our words. and He's going to make three big points in this text to help us understand that. And the point we just made, he circles back around to it. The first point is this that we see in this text. We need to understand as we're seeking to be disciples who are using our words in a Christ-honoring way that the words we speak are powerful. The words we speak are powerful. James says that, think about it, the the tongue is small, but make no mistake and don't underestimate the power power of it. It is incredibly powerful. It can influence the direction of your life. We know that just generally speaking in life. The job you got. The relationship you're in, your words are something that were very important and were involved in you entering into those things, right? Our words have the power to direct our lives. Our words have the power to direct other people's lives. He likens our words uh, to a, there, and he uses two examples. Uh, first, he likens it to a two-inch bit in the horse's mouth, right? So he, I, I didn't grow up horseback riding. I have done it some. Some of you grew up doing that, and you would be much more qualified to expound on this illustration right here. But what I do understand is that all it takes to control like a majestic animal, strong animal like a horse, a thousand pounds, stronger than 10 men, that all it takes for someone who is a hundred pounds to control that strong animal is a little two-inch bit in its mouth. And with those reins, you can tug to one side or to the other side and direct its path. James is saying the tongue is like that in your life. It has the power to direct your life. And then he talks about a ship. I love the uh, James, I love the way he writes, right? Because I don't have a, a, a very long attention span. I've always been that way. And I love pictures, right? I always loved picture books when I was growing up, right? If they had pictures, I was going straight to the pictures first before I read a word, Right? And so he uses a lot of pictures right here. So we were just on a horse galloping down a trail, and now we're out on the sea. You see it? There's a ship. It would have been an ancient type of ship uh, in those days that he would have been painting a picture of. But we can understand uh, what he's, the point he's making, even thinking about modern-day ships in our days. Think about a ship out there on the sea, and the, and the waves are crashing against the side of that ship. The winds are, are seeking to try to drive that ship in a certain direction, and all it takes is a 190-pound captain with his hands on a wheel that's attached to a small rudder on that boat to direct the path of that large vessel. James is saying the tongue is like that rudder. The mouth is small, but it makes a major impact and directs our life powerfully in different ways. Potentially, it can, it can impact things in some majorly good ways. There literally have been words that have been spoken that have, have ended wars. There have been words that have been spoken that have mended relationships that seemed irreparable. There have been words that have spoken, been spoken that just the words have been able to bring peace to a situation that seemed like it would never experience peace. The tongue is small. It's very powerful. It can be powerful in some really good ways, but it can also be powerfully destructive. And that's what James has in view here. 
It can be powerfully destructive on a global scale. When you think about atrocities in human history, like the Holocaust, millions of Jews that were killed, unthinkable things that were done, the hands of soldiers who were neatly dressed in their uniforms, treating people in inhumane ways, and mass murdering the Jewish nation. In the middle of all of that was what? A really good communicator with words led a nation to do unthinkable things. So we know that's true on a global scale, but it's also words are destructively or powerfully destructive on an individual scale, in our personal lives. Look at the end of verse 5. It says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And then he says this, he likens that. Think about, you know, Smokey the Bear, don't throw down a match or all the things that Smokey the Bear told us to do to make sure we didn't start wildfires. But yet wildfires still occur. We still understand how those happen. And if you've ever been to a place where hundreds and hundreds of acreage has been devastated by a serious wildfire, you could be there 25 years later and still see the effects of it. Still see where the vegetation was burned. And so it is with our words. One small word can spark destruction that can bring pain and destruction to not only your life, but others' lives as well. The Great Chicago Fire in October 8th of 1871, a fire spread across the city of Chicago at 8.30 p.m. 100,000 people were left homeless. 17,000 buildings were burned. 2,000 acres were burned down. 300 people killed, and it cost the city in the 1800s. This would have been a lot of money, $400 million dollars. You know how it started? With a little, a small amount of fire was dropped on a small patch of hay in a barn outside of Chicago. And it devastated that city. And James is saying this, a very sobering truth right here. Your words can bring that kind of devastation. That little muscle in your mouth has the power to bring that kind of devastation. It can ignite a fire that can spread and create devastation. And all it takes is a small spark. All it takes is a small prideful boast. All it takes is a quick unforgiving word. All it takes is a hateful remark. All it takes is a hot piece of gossip. All it takes is a subtle slander to start a raging fire in your life or in the lives of others that can absolutely destroy. I want to make a bold statement this morning, but I believe it's a statement that's true. I'd venture to say that there hasn't been a divorce. There hasn't been a shattered relationship that didn't have something to do at the center of that conflict with fiery words that were spoken. In your marriage right now, some of you showed up this morning and there's conflict there. There's bitterness there. There's strife there. There's hardship there. It continues to happen over and over again. And I would venture to say that that bitterness, that that hurt, that that anger has been ignited through the years by the sparks of fiery words that have flown around, maybe for years, maybe for days, but it may be be something that has been lingering for years. Some of you, your deep insecurities, your body image issues, trust issues, confidence issues, confidence issues can be traced back to something that was said, a fiery word that lit a flame that set ablaze something that you're still dealing with to this day. Maybe it was something that somebody who was supposed to, in your mind, love you and care for you. Maybe a parent, maybe a loved one, maybe a close friend. And you look back on the things they said to you and they, how could a parent say something like that to their kid? Some of you are living by the words that you heard 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 40 years ago. And it is because even as I talk about it right now and the way that that haunts you, see how it's still directing your life. Words are powerful. 
It's a reminder that the way we talk to our kids matters. The way you talk to your kids and the way you speak into their heart in, in those impressionable years matters. Lest you drop a fiery word on a patch of hay in their life that can create issues. It's been said that it's easier to build a strong child than it is to mend a broken man. It's easier to, to build a strong child than it is to mend a broken woman. What breaks a young lady when she's 23 or 25 or 27 is often traced back to a fiery word that was spoken into her life at maybe six, seven, or eight. And parents, if you don't take up your responsibility in your home, yes, to speak words of correction at times and discipline at times and love, but to also speak words of life into your kids. For them not to be left with a memory of a father or mother who harped on them with critical words constantly, but who spoke into their heart on a regular basis words of life, words that encouraged them, words that were uplifting, that they knew that you loved them and would carry that with them the rest of their life. Let me tell you, if you don't do that, if you don't speak those words into their heart in those impressionable years, they'll find those words somewhere else, often in places you don't want them to find them. Proverbs 16, 27 says there's a kind of speech that's a scorching fire. It destroys lives. There's so many of you who could testify to that today. Remember when we were in school and we heard sticks and stones will break my bones, but what? Right? I'm rubber, you're glue. Whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you. Right? Anybody else remember getting corporally lied to in school when you were little? Right? I'm calling out all my teachers right now who said that. Whoever made up those songs did not go to my middle school. All right? They absolutely, words do absolutely damage and destroy their words. Again, that Proverbs 16, 7 says are scorching fire. Destroy lives, destroy marriages. Hey, destroy churches. The fiery words of gossip. A Bible teacher named Ray Ortland said this, Adultery is perceived in most Bible-believing churches as a serious sin, and it is. He says this, but I've never seen it send an entire church into meltdown. Gossip, by contrast is often perceived as little, but often destroys churches. A small, seemingly small word of gossip can start a fire that can destroy a church. James continues about the tongue in verse 6. He says, The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among its members, staining the whole body. Another illustration, they're making the same point. One sin can ruin it all. One sinful word. Setting on fire the entire course of life. Directive power. And then here's where I think this whole uh, verse is getting to. It's set on fire by hell itself. It says the tongue is set on fire by hell. He brings Satan into the argument right here. He goes back to the Garden of Eden. And the way that he used words. Right? He didn't give Eve the fruit. He used words to deceive her. Right? And after they sinned, what immediately followed that? Them sinning with their words. Blaming God, blaming the serpent, blaming each other. And along the way, Satan loves when those fiery sinful words are thrown out just to spark so he can come along and fan it into a flame that can turn into a wildfire that'll destroy. This is a very, very convicting passage, right? And it's convicting in its... You know, hard to hear because there's not a person in here, including the person talking to you, that can't find something in here to, to convict us about. 
Because as I said at the beginning, all of us talk, we've been talking since we were little, and all of us struggle stewarding that gift well. All of us struggle using our words. Now, on one hand, some of you are dealing with some hurt. Some of you are dealing with something that was said to you along the way. And and we need to deal with those wounds this morning. You're going to have an opportunity to do that. But what I want you to do is just for a moment to set that aside and to take ownership of the fires that you've lit with your lips. Take an honest inventory of your words this morning. Are you guilty of reaching quickly to critical words, to slanderous words, to complaining words, to foolish words, to contentious words, to hurtful words, to vile words, to foolish words. Maybe for some of you, it would be more like sensual words or filthy words or boastful words. I'm talking about sinful, fiery words. We all must understand that to misuse our words is no small thing, and all of us are guilty of it. Our words matter. Our words are powerful, but what James shows us is we also need to see that our words are going to reveal something about us. Our words are powerful. Number two, our words, the words we speak are revealing. Last week, James told us that faith without works is dead, right? Well, James is showing us right here that part of our works is our words. Our words are our works. And if the faith that we claim to possess is not producing Christ-honoring words, what James is, the point James is making here next is that something's wrong with your faith. Something's not lining up. Look at what he says about the tongues of a lot of people in church in verse 12. I believe he has people like that in view. With it, we bless. What does he say in verse 12? With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. So James has already made the point in his book about not being a double-minded person. Double-minded people in the church. And he shows us here that double-minded people, that double-minded or double-hearted people speak with double tongues. That's the point he's making right here. They bless God in one moment, but then will turn around and curse people in another moment, tear people down with their words. He's talking about people who come in and sing a song like, oh, praise the name of the Lord, our God. Oh, praise his name forever. Amen. And then we'll leave. So they've they've outwardly praised their creator, God. And then it's the person that will do that and then leave and get into the car or go to lunch. And with the same mouth, with the same tongue will criticize and say hurtful words, gossipy words, slanderous words about people who are image bearers of the one that they were just praising. He says these things ought not to be. I think the point he's making is that that doesn't make sense. In other words, it's absurd. In other words, it's showing you that something is not right under the hood. In other words, your tongue will tell on you. It will reveal your heart. Jesus said, Matthew 12, 34, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What is truly in our hearts will show itself in our words. What is truly in our hearts will show itself in our words. Our tongue will tell on us. The tongue is a little window into what is going on in your heart. You know, it's interesting that this thought that the tongue will tell on you. You know, it's interesting that here we are in 2022 with all the medical advancements we have. And still to this day, if you take your child to the doctor, a pediatric office, and go into the doctor's office and, and they're, they're sick, what's one of the first things there's, a lot of the doctors are still going to say? Stick out your tongue. Isn't that funny? In other words, and you can ask a doctor today who deals with children, and they'll tell you there's, there's things that doctors can identify about other parts of your body by simply just looking at your tongue. If the tongue's dry... Right? It's poor hydration. 
If the tongue is yellow, it can mean poor digestion. If it's, if it's blue, it means that Max got into that ring pop he wasn't supposed to eat before dinner. The tongue will tell on you. There's actually a, a, a shade of red that uh, pediatric physicians, they, that they're familiar with, if they see that on the surface of the, on the tongue of a child, they'll, they'll get very concerned because it could indicate something called Kawasaki disease, which has to do with the heart tongue indicating something wrong with the heart. And James, his point's clear. He's saying that your, that your tongue, that your words, how you talk is revealing something about your heart. In other words, your words are the bucket and your heart is the well. And all the bucket's doing is it's going down there and simply bringing up what's in the well. And whatever is there, whatever, just look at your words. You'll get kind of an objective idea of what's there. Whatever's there is what comes up and flows through your words. And evidence that we possess authentic faith in that Jesus is the Lord of our life is that the bucket, not perfectly, but is progressively from the point that we repented of our sins and believed, is progressively bringing more and more fresh water to the surface that's coming through our words, that's aligning with the character of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And if that's not happening, well, for some of us, that may be an indication that that well, that that heart hasn't been made new. You're still dead in your sins. And your tongue, I believe James is making this point here, your tongue may be revealing that you possess false faith. Or, and this probably is the case for many of us in the room today, when you take inventory of your words, when you take inventory of how you spoke to the person, people who are closest to you this week, when your life was squeezed in those moments, and the pressure hit, what came out of you? Often we want to hide that when we come to church and forget that's what Jesus wants to work on. He, that's, that's what he wants to help you with. If You take inventory of the words in your life and, and they're not matching up. And yet beneath that is a desire for him to be the Lord of your life. It just may be simply mean that he's the Lord of your life. He's just not the Lord of your lips right now. And it shouldn't be that way. Maybe we've allowed sewage or Different things into that well that don't belong. If Jesus is the Lord of your life, make him the Lord of your lips. And if you don't, it doesn't make sense. That's what James is saying. It's inconsistent. It's as irrational as the examples from nature that he gives right there at the end of those verses. I'll let you read those on your own again. And so here we are. And James kind of just leaves it hanging. Look how he ends. Very convicting passage. None of us escape the conviction in this passage. And yet he ends with, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Well, no, neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Let's let's go home. Because you're left wondering, okay, I feel convicted. I want to get better at this. How can we get better at this? What can we do? And James seems to imply that we can't do anything. Where do we go with that? Look at verse 7. James points out how man has this amazing ability to tame like any animal on earth. Right? You've been to the zoo. You've paid money to go to the zoo. Have you ever stood there at the lion exhibit and gone, somebody at one time had to catch that thing. Somebody along the way had to like figure out a way to catch a, a grown lion. I looked this up this week that just... Just thinking about man's impressive ability to capture dangerous creatures. If you go to the Monterey Bay Aquarium in California, it's the only aquarium in the world that has on display an actual great white shark. Right? That's amazing to me. Someone along the way said, let's try to catch that and put it in an aquarium. 
Don't, I'm sure that's a good idea. I would go look at it, right? But maybe they need to be sent a copy of Jaws. It may not end well. Man has the ability, man has the ingenuity, the creativity and the engineering skills to capture and to tame to a certain degree any animal on earth. And yet what James is saying is as true as that is, there's a little three inch creature of mucous membrane inside of your mouth that man cannot tame. You can't control it. I was riding in the car with Max this past week and we were talking about words. I tend to kind of bring up whatever I'm studying for for that week's message. Just It kind of comes up in conversation. And he was talking about words kids should say and shouldn't say, which becomes an interesting conversation. And I've tried to help him understand that all of us struggle with words. That, and I said, I'm actually preaching on this this Sunday, Max. I'm talking about taming the tongue. He goes, I don't understand what that means. I said, controlling your words. He goes, oh, I have control of my tongue. And I said, really? So I'm driving with my, looking in the rearview mirror. And I'm waiting for his explanation, for him to wax eloquent on why he believes he has control in his tongue. And I look back, and he's got his mouth open. And he goes, see, left, right, up, down, left, right. True story. And I was able to say, no, I'm talking about your words, Max. None of us have the ability to tame our tongue. We can't do it. And so the question is, is what do we do? The final point this morning is this. Uh, the words that we speak can change. And I'm going to add something to that. If. The words we speak can change. If. There's hope here. And I believe it's implied all over. You know, James is not a book that explicitly lists out, like Paul does in several places, how someone is saved. His main point is how safe people live. And how to be saved comes through. It comes through all over the place. We talked a little bit about that last week. But what James is saying right here is not, in the point that he's about to make, is not that we can be sinless, but that it is possible for us to sin less with our words if. If we live in light of the mercy of God. If we live in light of what the perfect man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ in verse 2, came and did for us in our place. If we learn to depend on the Holy Spirit who is completely responsible for our salvation and now is completely responsible for our sanctification, even the sanctification of our words. You know what we don't need this morning? You know what's not going to change us? You know what James wouldn't point us to as the main thing we need to help us talk the way we're supposed to talk or 10 steps to be a better talker? I'm not going to give you 10 principles on how to use your words more wisely this morning. I'm not saying there's not a place for that. And there's not a time for that. And those things aren't helpful. But I'm saying that the main thing that you need to realize this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and if you don't have a rein on your tongue the way you should, is that you have a living Savior who is your king and you need to get around him once again. You are not going to speak words of grace and love and patience and blessing and encouragement to people who are close to you, to anyone at all, without spending regular time with the living Savior and hearing Him speak those words into your life. You will not respond to someone with the grace that is needed in that moment unless you have spent time sitting at the foot of the cross seeing the way that Jesus responded to you in your time of need. No principles this morning. Simply me pushing you to pour over the grace of God, the love of God, written down in the word of God. To help you understand who you are in Christ. 
See, so much of our words, and that bucket bringing up words, thoughts, encouragement, words of life, words laced with grace and love and mercy and kindness and all the fruits of the Spirit, it's so tied to our understanding, recognition, remembering our identity in Christ. Embracing your identity in Christ. Remembering, have you stopped and remembered today in a fresh way that if you are a Christ follower, that you are son of the king, that you're a daughter of the king? Are you, con- are you convinced today what is true? That you have a heavenly father who loves you. You have a heavenly father, if you are in Christ, who is proud of you, who approves of you, who accepts you. He could not love you any more than he loves you right now. He is for you. See, if you're convinced of that, if I'm convinced of the gospel, if I'm convinced of my identity in Christ, I have no reason to go tear anybody else down to make myself feel better because I'm accepted by God through Christ Jesus. So what I'm telling you is you don't need five tips this morning. You need to learn to walk with God and abide in him and to lean into him and to pursue him. And when you do that, an amazing thing happens. Your speech, your words begin to reflect the very nature of our living, loving, gracious God. Living in light of the gospel, living in light of the mercies of God is the key to live your life submitted to the lordship of Christ in all areas, specifically this area of our words. So there's two groups that I want to address as we close down this morning. I'm going to go back to those of you who, and again, if you're a Christ follower, we're, we're thinking in light of the mercies of God, in light of the gospel. You're there at Calvary seeing Jesus on that cross, but also understanding he didn't stay there. He went to the tomb and he rose again, proving that the work that he did on the cross is accomplished. In light of his mercies, in light of a bloody cross and an empty tomb. I want you to think about the words, because as I went through that earlier, there's some of you, those words still sting you. Could have been spoken to you 25 years ago, 35 years ago, 45 years ago. Maybe it was you're not smart enough, you're not pretty enough some fiery word that was spoken, or maybe it was just a word of affirmation that wasn't given. That you still wonder, how could a father never say I love you to his child? And you're wounded by that. And you've been carrying that around for years, and you've let that direct your life. Even after you've come to Christ, you let that keep kind of sneaking in and trying to redefine who you are. And what Jesus is saying, look at the cross, look at your risen Savior. What he's saying is, you're mine. I love you. I left heaven to come to earth to die for you, to die on the cross. You're accepted in light of his mercies, in light of his words on, hey, in light of his words on the cross, when he looked at those hurting him. The Father forgive them. They, They know not what they do. In light of your identity, in light of his example, pray that God would allow you and help you to forgive that person. That's still festering. If that's still in you, you need to be set free from that. But you cannot do it on your own. It's going to take you going, God, I do not want to live as a prisoner to this anymore. I need your Holy Spirit to help set me free from this. It's the only way you'll be set free from the bitterness. And as it's been said, you'll, a prisoner will be set free and you'll realize the prisoner was you. It's hard, but pray for him to help you to forgive that person this morning. Others of you feel convicted this morning because you've sinned with your words. You have hurt people with your words, criticized people with your words. And in light of his mercies, here's our response. 
In life is mercy, here's our response. We're to confess those sins, to repent of those sins, to come to God this morning to go, God, I have not loved you and honored you and worshipped you and loved the people around me with my lips and with my words the way that I should have. I've spoken controlling things, critical things, words from an insecure heart. God, I've I've held back life-giving words. I've lit matches of jabbing words. I've said things that I shouldn't say, and I'm I'm here to tell you, God, that I, I want you to be the Lord of my life, but you have not been the Lord of my lips. You have not been the Lord of my mouth, and I ask you to forgive me of that today. I'm sorry, and I, I, don't, I don't want to be that way, and I pray that you give me a renewed desire to be the kind of man or the kind of woman who speaks the words that honor you. And you know what God is? He's rich in mercy. You can confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And then you know what happens when you confess those sins, when you repent of those sins, when you denounce that way of speaking, say that's not who I am. You know what it does? It fills your heart with a gospel grace fuel that now we leave this place and in light of his mercies, in light of his gospel, we get to work. We get to work with our words. We get to work with our words with our kids. Christian fathers, I just want to say a word to you this morning. Colossians 3 has a sobering warning for fathers where it warns us about the propensity we have to speak harshly to our kids, to provoke them to anger. It says don't do that. Always pointing out what they need to correct, always criticizing them. There's just something in our sinful nature that does that. Again, that can be redeemed and and that that can begin to take the shape and the form in a sanctified way of helping encourage them and move them along, teaching them the definition of hard work. But we know there's a bent in us and in our flesh to be overcritical, to be over harsh and to not balance that out with loving words, words that give life, words of affirmation, words of approval, words of encouragement. And you know the reason why we're prone to do that? You know why we tend to overly criticize our kids and use harsh words? words with them, is in that moment, we get our eyes off the truth that God already sees us and loves us as much as he could because of what Jesus has done for us. This is key. Never forget this. And when we forget our identity in here, when we forget our identity in Christ that's been communicated to us through his word, we will grasp for it in this world. That's a word for fathers and mothers, for men and women. When we are not living in our identity... It's been established in Christ Jesus and described to us in God's word. We will grasp for it in this world. And as fathers, there's no more commonplace for many adults to fight for that than to obsess over your kids being as perfect as possible. Because if they mess up, there's no greater reflection on me. And if I'm not secure in my relationship with Christ vertically, right, I will take that out on them horizontally. So we got to battle for that not to happen. But in light of who I am in Jesus, right? In light of the gospel, in light of who I am in Christ, I'm free to speak words of encouragement, of life, of uh, of encouragement to them. Second thing is this, in in marriage, there may be be, need to uh, some spouses, maybe women repenting of of trying to, to, to lord over your husbands or men harshly criticizing their wives. And I only mention that because that seems to be the propensity in our flesh and our sinfulness that we tend to go one of those two ways. Let me ask you, okay, Valentine's Day is coming up tomorrow. Hopefully you guys, hopefully ladies are remembering to exchange some things. 
basic. Just remember tomorrow's Valentine's Day. Start there. But when's just the last time outside of a Valentine's Day that you looked at your wife, your spouse, your husband in the eyes and said, I'm so grateful for you. You're not a perfect man. I know you mess up, but I want you to know that I love you. And I'm so grateful God gave me you. And I want you to know you're a good dad. And you're a good husband. And I'm for you. When's the last time, guys, you looked your wife in the eyes and said, hey, I want you to know I see you and I love you. And we're so grateful to have you as mom, as my wife. When's the last time you stopped and spoke words of affirmation and encouragement? Words that reflected the words that God says to you in Christ Jesus. Let me say a word to young people. Here's my word to those who, maybe teenagers, those in your 20s. um, This is something that was on my heart this week to say to you. If you're in Christ, stop worrying about the words that people are saying about you. Maybe that's not just a word for 20-somethings. Maybe that's a word for everybody. Spend more time focused on what Jesus has said about you. And then spend as much time as you can lifting people up and affirming you. People, I can promise you that a life promoting Jesus, worshiping him and using your words to exalt Jesus and to encourage other people is a lot more fun and free than walking around looking for words that will promote you and exalt yourself. or Seeking people's approval of you. That's slavery, man. That's not what Jesus died to set you free for. Rest in his words and use your words to bless other people. You got to get close to the Savior. You've got to get close to the Savior. There's so much more we could say. But I simply want to end with this. With eyes on the cross, with a heart that believes the tomb is empty. Remember what Jesus did for you. Jesus never sinned with his words. He never had an ounce of sin in his heart. And yet he didn't take the reward for a life well lived. He laid down his life and he died for us. He never sinned with his lips and yet died for those of us who have. He took the fire of hell for us. You know, he did that so now that we can live under the banner. You ready? That has written on it the three greatest words ever. It is finished. So in light of his mercies, may we use our mouth to reflect his gracious, loving, forgiving, life-giving character. Hey, one day, one day, we will live in a place, if you're in Christ Jesus, where you will never sin with your mouth again. Praise God. One day, you will say your last word on this planet and you will enter into, enter into eternity where you'll be completely sanctified. And that'll be a glorious day and that's, that should be encouraging and that should uh, create a celebration in our hearts as we think about this. But we tend to focus on that last word that we speak on earth and the first words we speak on earth. And forget that in between there's millions and millions of words that matter. That matter. Let's feel the weight of that this morning. But let's also celebrate the price that's been paid. That has raised us to new life. That gives us the capacity to pursue holiness. Specifically with our words. Let's pray.